You know, you said some men feel un- unworthy of love, and I-, I would actually go as far as to say the vast majority of humanity feels unworthy of love, men and women. Today, a conversation with Brian Reeves, ex-Air Force captain turned author, blogger, relationship coach. And we are talking about love, obviously. (laughs) And this fear of opening up to love and what happens when we do, right? When we do, we open ourselves up to getting obliterated getting really, really hurt, near mortally wounded by love. That's what we're talking about. Why men and women have a hard time opening up. What happens when we do? How men and women emote differently? What happens when you ask somebody, what do you think about that? Versus how do you feel about that? This is basically fundamentally two dudes talking about love and the dance between the feminine and the masculine. My name is Sean Galanos, and this is The Love Drive. Brian Reeves. Brian with a Y. Brian with a Y. Could you please introduce yourself? I am Brian Reeves, Brian with a Y Reeves. Boy, what is there to know about me in an introduction? My goodness. Well, I am a 46 years exquisitely, painfully, uh, deeply, sometimes torturously, and often very fortunately aged man. I'm a former United States Air Force captain turned relationship coach, uh, blogger. A number of years ago, I wrote a blog called Choose Her Every Day or Leave Her, which has been read by somewhere between 30 and 50 million people around the world. Wow. And, uh, but I've written a lot more than just that. <laughs> but this is what I do. I, I currently work with and coach both couples and individuals, men and women, to creating thriving lives and relationships. And uh, I'm glad to be here, Sean. Yeah, Brian, thank you so much for being here. And today we're talking about men being worthy of love. That is a topic that folks have wanted to hear about, this this idea that ah, some guys just don't feel worthy of love. I guess, I mean, we could even boil that down to humans not feeling worthy of love. Yeah. Um, so I guess we could start. We could start there. This idea of yeah. love worthiness, and in my eyes, just being human means that you have a right, a birthright to love. And I guess I'm kind of curious your thoughts on just that as an opening statement. You know, I wrote a book called "Tell the Truth and Let the Peace Fall Where It May," and I did uh, ten. 10 drafts of that book. And so that book changed a lot over the three years and 10 drafts that I wrote that book. 
Tell the truth, let the peace, P-E-A-C-E, fall where it may. The very first line of that book didn't change over all 10 drafts of the book, Sean. And the very first line of that book is, if I tell you who I really am, I'm afraid you won't love me. If I tell you who I really am, I'm afraid you won't love me. You know, you said some men, <clears throat> some men feel un- unworthy of love. And I-, I would actually go as far as to say the vast majority of humanity feels unworthy of love, men and women, but we're focusing on men. I, 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 I'm not sure I've met a man who always felt worthy of love. And I've probably overwhelmingly met most of the men that I met predominantly feel unworthy of love. <laughs> I don't know, that's a complicated way of saying it. <laughs> a lot of people feel unworthy of love. It's such a it's like the common experience. And even that first line of my book, even over 10 drafts of writing, you know, I took out I took out chapters, I rewrote all kinds of sections, everything, but that one line which I started with never changed because it's like it was the core of my own wound. If I tell you who I really am, you won't love me. Yeah, man, it just seems to be the human condition. In my experience, in my current relationship, I've been able to really show her who I really am. And every step of the way, she's been like, yep, that's cool. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, that too. Yeah, that's fine. Oh, that's that's weird, but I like it. Mm. <laughs> and it just is so freeing to be able to do that to be able to like fully open up and show yourself to somebody and to not have to wear a mask or pretend that I'm cooler, stronger, chiller, more flexible, got my shit together more than I actually do. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think that's a, it's a key distinction about intimate relationship that, that in this, in the whole self love movement, <clears throat> I think a lot of the self love movement I wouldn't say gets wrong, but but sort of gets confused around thinking that I need to be able to fully love myself before I can be in relationship with another in a healthy way. I think what you just described is that actually there's so much healing that can take place in the context of an intimate relationship with another. So much of being witnessed. <clears throat> you know, I think I think what is a prerequisite is having the courage to tell the truth about yourself, to to reveal yourself, at least not all at once, but slowly over time to another person in an intimate dance, to have the courage to do that, knowing that you might get rejected. I mean, Sean, you don't have any guarantee that every time you reveal a new layer of yourself, your your partner's going to say, oh, that's, that's, that's fine, that's welcome. Yeah. There's no guarantee of that, is there? No, there's no guarantee. And there's also, it doesn't also, it doesn't mean that just because I reveal something that she doesn't like, the relationship is over. Right. There's room for that as well. There's room for her to be like, yo, I'm out. Like, I liked all that stuff, but I really don't like this and, and I can't <laughs> stay for that. I mean, that's totally right. possible. In the realm of things, the you know, in the realm of ways that my relationship can go, that can happen. And also the other thing can happen. Like, oh, I... That's not something I'm super excited about, but I also accept it. And yeah, maybe it's something that we can work on because it doesn't really work with me. Yeah. So, and, I, and I'll tell you, in my own relationship, both of us have had at times these moments of panic 
of hell no, there's no way I can be with that part of you. And yet, heck, she and I even broke up six months into our relationship. We've been together for five years now. Uh, We broke up six months because we were both running into some of that stuff that was like, oh God, I don't know if I can do this. (laughs) I don't know if that thing that you, that thing about you over there, I don't know. As I'm such a big fan of getting support, whether working with a coach or a therapist or, you know, reading books, doing programs, whatever, we're all going to run into stuff if we're, if we're really being honest with ourselves and each other. So here's a beautiful paradox, right? You said earlier, you don't need to be fully healed to be in a relationship and you're a big fan of work. And I'm, I'm with you on this. I, I love paradoxes. I feel like the more I do this work, the more I realize that there is no clear cut answer on any of this. And so, yes, you both are kind of perfect just the way you are and you could use some work. Right? This yeah. is my favorite quote on this topic from um, Shunrui Suzuki. I might be butchering that. Uh you're perfect just the way you are and you can use some work. So you don't need another workshop. You don't need another book. You don't need a program to get into a relationship. And at the same time, all that stuff can help. Yeah. Yeah. I I love the exploration of paradox. I agree with you a thousand percent. I think the best, by best, I just mean the most successful, truly thriving relationships are relationships that embrace paradox so much of what we encounter in intimacy doesn't make any goddamn sense. So much of, I mean, I'm five years into my relationship with Sylvie. And if I would have believed some of the things that I was believing, and if, if I'd have kept believing them early in our relationship, and her too, we, we, we wouldn't be together. Yeah, We just wouldn't be together. There were just some things that were just so confronting in our own dynamic. Um, and I don't mean big things like you know, there was no abuse or any kind of name calling or like, you know, really terrible behavior. I don't mean anything like that, yeah. but there were just some, some value systems, some, some fears, I suppose we could say, uh, some just, but the ways of, of, of seeing the world and believing about how love should be and this and that, that we didn't really fit with each other. And, and, you know, to your point, was it when we met, she was a marriage and family therapist. I was a relationship coach. I mean, we're both still those things, but you know, if anyone should know how to make a relationship work, it was us two. And we really hit some walls, <laughs> um, particularly in the beginning of our relationship. And, and, but it was our, our own willingness to not trust all of our conclusions about things and to get support to help us see what we could not see. She and I have an extraordinary relationship and it's it's not because we agree on everything, hardly. Or <laughs> or we have the we see everything the same way. Quite the opposite in so many cases, but it's because of our willingness to to not believe all of our conclusions and to be influenced by each other in ways that would are at times really uncomfortable. That's one of the beautiful things about relationships. When you're with somebody who's different than you, you can choose to see that as a threat or you can choose to be inspired by their differences. And make no mistake, Sean, I often see it as a threat. (laughs) 
my first instinct is, oh, hell no. Uh-uh. Maybe that's You're the, not gonna, the fighter pilot in you. I don't know. It's the, I don't know what it is either, but it's, I mean, I have a lot of clues around where it comes from, but yeah, I mean, the, you know, be a, I think in a lot of ways I felt dis, very disempowered as a child. And as an adult, I don't want to feel disempowered. I want to feel empowered. But boy, there's a rabbit hole you and I are circling at the moment. I don't know if we want to go down. I'll go. I'll go, man. Let's go. <laughs> What's the rabbit hole? Well, what is the rabbit hole? I think coming back to this question of feeling unworthy of love, I mean, how many of us were perfectly loved by our parents in, in the ways that we, and I don't mean the kind of parental love that would let us get away with anything with no boundaries. That's not a perfect kind of love. Just whatever the hell that means. How many of us were perfectly loved by our parents? Nobody. Um, so I don't, I've, I've yet to meet someone who was perfectly loved in every single way that they, they, you know, may have needed to be loved throughout their childhood by both in, in both kind of the masculine and feminine versions of love. So I think we both, we all come into adulthood with these sort of warped, kinked experiences of being loved and of, of expressing and receiving love, we all come into adulthood with these these very stressed uh, experiences of love. And then, you know, naturally, what are we going to do in our adult relationships? Just seek to either recreate that or, or run the hell away from it and recreate the opposite. But either way, we're still kind of imprisoned by it. And uh, I, I'm certainly no exception to that experience, no. even into my 40s. You know, so much of my of my initial uh, resistance to to Sylvie, my partner, or to the person disagreeing with me over some political conversation. It's the same, really, in the end, whether I'm resisting Sylvie's influence over, you know, what food I eat, or I'm resisting someone else's opinion over who should be president. What I notice in me is it always comes down to this mortal fear, this just incredible fear of being obliterated. Mm. Like, like, I'm not going to be able to exist. I'm not worthy of existence and their opinion or their, if they win, if, if their influence wins out over mine, then I'm, I'm, I'll be obliterated. Yeah. Or where does the influence, the, the, the dominance of their influence end, right? If it's food here and then this now, what's next? You know, at what, which point I've got no say anymore. I'm no longer uh, in control of my life. And I'll tell you, yeah, it's interesting you say that because that, that doesn't necessarily happen consciously for me, you know, and, and I hear this and I hear it a lot in politics where people say, you know, well, first they're going to impeach the president, and then what are they going to do? Then they're going to impeach all the members of Congress. Then they're going to take your meat. They're going to take cows away from you. You're not going to be able to eat meat. It's like this whole, they're going to take your guns away. They're going to put you, everyone, everyone's going to be in prison. It's like, what the fuck are you talking about? We're just, like, how did you make that chain of events happen that's just so disconnected from, but I think you're right. I mean, Again, for me, it just happens in the moment. And look, I, I grew up a child of of an alcohol, alcoholic parent who, who in, in many ways, obliterated me as a child, who I, I felt obliterated by. 
emotionally, intellectually, like there was just not a lot of space for me to exist in some ways. And so that's a wound that I uniquely carry. I mean, um, that's going to show up differently for different people. But for me, it's just in the moment, the moment somebody, the moment I feel threatened, like I don't get to exist, man, my defenses rise immediately. And my fight stance, you know, that's, you know, fight or flight. I'm a fighter, which uh, doesn't serve me in most of these situations. Yeah. I'm guessing, so what, what's coming up for me on this is less around men being worthy of love and more around men letting letting love in letting themselves fall in love, letting themselves open up to love, right? Because if you're in a fight stance, you've got your walls up, you got your armor on, no one can pierce that. Right? That's right. And so there's a fear for you of being obliterated in love. For me, there was, this, there was a huge fear of, uh, yeah, a fear of getting hurt, a fear of being rejected, a fear of, yeah, not, having someone love me if I really showed them who I was. Well, uh, and as men, I mean, women get this too, but as men, throughout our childhood, we are denied, we're constantly taught to deny what we're feeling. We're constantly taught to override uh, what we're experiencing with, you know, it's like falling off a bicycle and we start to cry and we get told, don't cry, just get on the bike and keep, keep, keep biking. Get back up, you know, brush yourself off. Come on, get on there. You you can get you can do it. And it's it's very innocent. It seems it's very innocent seeming, even even when delivered well, that kind of message. And yet, I mean, that happens in countless, countless ways, some incredibly dismissive and destructive towards our own our, our the fullness of our being. And it really picks up pace in in teenagehood. I, I was fascinated to learn of research that shows the that uh, boys the the language boys use about their parents, about their friends, about themselves changes dramatically uh, at the onset of puberty. You know, between twelve and fifteen, say, where when they are talking about their friends you know, at age eight or 10, they'll say, oh, I love my friend. You know, they'll hug, I love, they're very warm and affectionate, tend to be. Whereas as soon as we then hit teenage years, our, the the, the language we use, like, oh yeah, no, he's cool. <laughs> you know, Sean, yeah, he's cool. He's all right. He's all right, he's cool. Yeah, he's all right. <laughs> Same you know? friend. Same exact friend. And, and, so, I mean, look, there's, there's, there's hormonal things that are happening. You know, we're getting flooded with testosterone, which tends to block oxytocin and which is the bonding chemical that makes us feel more bonded to each other, to, um, you know, the, the warm fuzzies. I mean, there's a lot of things happening, but on top of that, then there's just the, all the social messages, you know, boys don't cry, don't be a pussy, you know, boys, boys, you know, the real man gets the girl. Um, all, all, you know, all of these things, you know, we start to be pressured into taking drugs and alcohol, you know, it's like, it's, 
it's like we're these flirtations with the feminine, but don't let her, you know, I remember, I'll never forget this when I was a teenager. It was, it was, it was this idea of being pussy whipped. Don't, don't be, don't get, don't let a, a girl pussy whip you. What the fuck does that mean? Pussy whipped. Like don't, in other words, don't, don't be overcome by the feminine. Right. You got to dominate her. Don't like you know, it. I, don't like it so much that you can build some, something, you know, with equality and respect. Well, certainly that's where this ultimately, that that's sort of where it goes. But just initially it, it was, don't you dare get knocked off your center as a man. Don't be affected. Really, that's what it came. It's sort of the core. Meant, don't be affected by her. Yeah. And I, I saw this a few years ago. Uh, I was at a. Uh, it's actually two days after I met Sylvie. I was at a um, college reunion in Arizona with all my old fraternity brothers. And my fraternity man, they're drinkers. They love to drink alcohol. And I remember. Um, and that's, you know, one of the few times I'll really let myself drink and kind of be taken away by that experience. And we were at a bar, in Prescott, Arizona, and all these guys, you know, we're having a great time, having a lot of fun, but we're getting plastered. You know, Moscow mules, they just keep keep invading my stomach. And I remember a couple of us guys were looking across the room at, a, at a, one of our fraternity brothers, and he was just plastered. And, but we're looking at him like his, you know, his eyes are just all screwy. His face is just, he just has that, that look of a, just a completely, he's gone. And we're looking at him and we're kind of make, and we're not kind of, we are making fun of him. You know, like, look at him. Ah, Jeff, he can't, he can't hold his alcohol. It's basically we're like, look at the feminine. She got him. That's basically what we're saying. Look, the feminine, she got him. The feminine fucked him up. Look at, look at that. Look at that sad excuse of a man. I mean, here we are all drinking, taking, you know, alcohol is very feminizing, gets us in our feelings. You know, I love you, man. It gets us back to the <laughs> pre-teen pre years. I love you, man. Oh, yeah, we're all hugging and we're, you know, we're all flowing in love together <laughs> or fighting. Yeah. But anyway, emotions are coming out. But at the same time, we're making fun of each other if you can't hold your alcohol. Yeah. If, if she gets the best of you. Yeah. And I think that's, that's, you know, okay. That's one of the maps that I work with in my coaching and just that I've learned to see the world through this masculine feminine filter and, and uh, or this masculine feminine, uh, these archetypal uh, dynamic. And, you know, as a man, you said you, you said it, Sean, actually, it's hard to receive love. Yeah. Hard to receive. It is really hard to receive. I mean, sometimes Sylvie will say something really kind and praising towards me and I'll just immediately brush it off because if I really take it in, I have to feel something. You might cry. I might cry. <laughs> I'll be, I'll be affected. I have to let myself be affected. Yeah. And for most of my life, I've been made fun of, or I've been somehow been told that being affected by anything in the feminine makes me less human, less man, certainly. Yeah. There are very few instances where it's okay to show emotion as a man. Uh, when your team loses the big game, Yeah, might be one of them, or when a close family member dies. 
And a, and a lot of guys, it's more acceptable when your team loses the game than when a close family member dies. Right. <laughs> really. I mean, right. like how many men, when a close family member dies, you know, just get over it. Yeah. Two tears get and a beer. Got to get over it. It's time to move on. Yeah. Because to to feel something to that degree for 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 most men is is it's over, it's out of the realms of our capacity because we've been so lopped off you know the the edges of our emotional capacities have just been lopped off I, that's not really the right way of saying it just been suppressed yeah it's still there it's just hard to access and we haven't been taught to grieve you know our culture is horrible at grieving yeah so, I mean, there's just, there's just a lot. I think that's one of the, the greatest gifts of intimacy for me, which I've really only been exploring and practicing with Sylvie because in prior relationships, I just, I just wasn't aware of, of this as a thing, yeah. is, is learning to let myself feel. <sighs> feels nice to hear that. Mm. It also feels nice to be able to do that in the the presence of somebody safe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Uh, that makes, uh, that makes uh, the world of difference because that's the fear, right? You open up and you're going to get ridiculed even by your lady. Your lady's going to tell you to buck up. Oh man. And I can't tell you though, even still, and I teach this shit, Sean, but even still, uh, you know, I'll, we'll be watching a movie. She's balling. I'm starting to ball. I'm telling myself though, don't you do it. Don't you do it, Brian Reeves. With a Y. Brian with a Y, Reeves. Don't you don't. Uh-uh. No. I can feel it. Like the resistance. It's in my nervous system. <laughs> you know? And it turns Sylvie on when I cry. Yeah. It makes her feel closer to me. Yeah. yeah our relationship works better when I let myself cry. <laughs> yeah. And yet, uh, I still resist it. Because of decades, decades of programming and practice, not just programming, but practice not feeling. Yeah. Cutting it off. I was in the military. I was trained to not feel. Yeah. You get, you had, you weren't crying. You had dust in your eye. <laughs> That's right. That's right. It's just dust. <laughs> eyelash. So much dust. It's just an eyelash. From the, from the propellers. <laughs> Crazy. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think being able to feel in the presence of my lady makes us closer. She sees me as someone who's more in touch with their emotions. Actually, funnily enough, I'm sort of more in touch with my emotions than she is. She's a slow processor. And I'm a sort of, uh, you know, real-time processor. That means if something upsets me right right now, it's very hard for me to keep going without like going, moving through that, whatever that situation is, that emotional experience. It'll take her days, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah. And she's good at saying, like, I don't actually really know, but I'll get back to you on that. Yeah. So in, in the masculine-feminine dynamic, I have more feminine energy in that respect. She has more masculine energy in that respect. Well, and what I, what I, might, I might frame that more is not that you have more, she has less, if I may offer just that, you're, you may be more connected to your feminine expression. It may take her a little more time to connect to that part of her. Sure. You may be more practiced. She may be less practiced or probably I would, I'd be willing to bet that in her family, 
growing up, uh, expressions of emotion probably weren't, they either weren't welcome or they, they, uh, weren't demonstrated by parents. Sure. Yeah. She was the middle child. She was the peacekeeper. The peacekeeper. Yeah. yeah the peacekeeper. And I was the, oh, that's right. I was the, the younger, I was the baby and I was the out of control, emotional, you know, just like flying off the handle, crying all the time kid. Mm-hmm. So I was used, more used to being vocal and or demonstrative about my, my emotional outbursts and condition. And I think it's, it's, I, I find it's very common that, that relationships, one, one partner, doesn't matter, same sex, heterosexual, one partner tends to be more, more feeling oriented and one partner tends to be more what I, what I call logic oriented. And not to say that you, you don't have your own logic, but you, as you said, like you're, you're more immediate in the expression of feelings. Whereas your partner take, I, I'm your partner in that sense. I, I often, you know, if Sylvie asks me how I'm feeling, she needs to get ready to wait yeah. <laughs> for an answer, <laughs> possibly for days. So on, you know. on that note, I remember asking this woman that I was dating what she thought about something. And she, she, she goes, I don't think about things. I feel them. And so I learned to ask her, how do you feel about that? Yeah. Because she couldn't answer. She, she wasn't even interested in answering what she thought about it. And so I was in my logic, you know, the rational side. What are we, you know, analyzing? And she was in her feeling body. Yeah. Um, so I learned to switch those two around. If I wanted to know how somebody felt, ask them what they feel about it. Yeah. Well, you know, Dr. Pat Allen, uh, this this 90-year-old woman, I don't know if you've heard of her or her work. She wrote a book called Getting to I Do. Hmm. She's an interesting woman. Um, I don't I don't endorse all of her work, but she's certainly said some done some really brilliant work and and she actually did her doctoral thesis on male-female communication. Now, this was shit, man, 50 years ago. So different times, different experiences. And, but what she learned in her doctoral thesis, which she continued to teach at least until you know five or six years ago when I would go to her lectures here in Los Angeles, was, was generally speaking, in, in, in male-female communication, that it tends to flow better when you ask a man, how do you think about something? And you ask a woman, how do you feel about something? Again, it tends to. I mean, there are some men, I remember when I got out of the military, I was so rejecting of logic. I I didn't know what was going on. I just knew that I, I felt dead inside and I was just like so disconnected from my own feminine energy and I was longing for it for so much. And I lived, it was in my language. It was like, where, where do I want to travel today? I was backpacking around Europe and, and Egypt and Australia. And I was just completely driven by, well, what do I feel like? What do I feel like doing? I didn't even want to talk about what I'm thinking. I just, what do I feel like doing? Yeah. So, you know, there was a season where I really needed to be in the language of, of, of what do I feel like? But, but in intimacy, well, and it's interesting. It's no mistake because Sean, I was at, at that age. I was drawn to women who were much more thinking oriented, mm. and we hated each other. 
I was way more feeling oriented and they were way more thinking oriented, but we just battled. And, but you were also attracted to them. I was totally drawn to them. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'll never, I'll never understand. I guess maybe I do understand. Maybe I do understand, but why we're attracted to the thing that is going to make it difficult. That's going to be challenging. What I'm aware of, what I believe, what I, what I know of myself is I so wanted, I was so uh, disoriented in my life after the military that I didn't know where I was going. I didn't know what to do with myself. I didn't, I mean, I literally just had a backpack and was going wherever I felt like going that day. And so when I met a woman who was deeply oriented in her life, she was studying to be a doctor. She knew exactly where she was going, not just that day, but for the next 20 years of her life. I mean, she had it all planned out. There's a part of me, and again, I, I it's like it's 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 the it's the dance of complementary energies. That's what intimate relationship really is. It's this we're drawn to the complementary energy that we want in our lives that we don't currently aren't currently feeling connected to. I felt so disoriented that I was drawn to a woman who was deeply oriented. Mm. And it works in the sense that it draws you together, but it doesn't work in the sense that, at least in that case, my, and I married this woman, I married this French woman who was very oriented. Vraiment? And in that case, though, her, her deep, you know, you could say she was more masculine oriented at that time and I was more feminine oriented, but her deep feminine essence underneath that masculine shell she was wearing, her deep feminine essence was, was yearning for a man who was more masculine oriented, but I was so feminine. I was, I was leading with my feminine shell, you know, uh, where do I feel like going today? What do I feel like eating? What do I feel about this? I was, <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. And my, you know, my, like my core masculine essence, which I wasn't connected to or expressing was still aching for a woman who was more feminine oriented. So it's like our shells were attracted to each other, mm. but our cores were, were starving for, in, for, for interaction, for engagement, mm. for, for that dance. So we were, we, we were drawn to each other on the surface, but underneath we were both dying for real intimacy. Wow. So, you know, but we both had something the other wanted. I mean, she clearly wanted a man who she clearly wanted to connect more to her feelings because that's what I, that's all the work I was doing. Yeah. What do I feel like? Yeah. I clearly wanted to connect more to in my inner orientation. Where the hell am I going with my life? Because yeah. that's what she was so clear about. Wow. So, you know, we, we, we brought each other into our lives as like, here's a taste of what each of us are missing. Hmm. But because we had no ability to to understand that at the time, all we did was just fucking hate each other. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, like, oh, it was a, it was horrible. Wow. 
Yeah. Yeah, that's such a better answer than what I was coming up with, which is that, oh, if you're... If you fear intimacy, then you'll be attracted to somebody that's unavailable so that you'll never really get deep enough to taste the fruits of that intimacy, but also uh, you'll never really get hurt, right? If you if you fall in love with emotionally unavailable people, then you never have to, you yourself, be emotionally available to the point where you might hurt another or get hurt yourself. Yeah. Well, there's certainly, I mean, there's layers to all of this. And, and I think that there, there's an interesting layer there as well that, you know, we're attracted to in many ways, what is familiar as well. And, you know, one of the reasons that I, as a man was more feminine oriented, even though I went through the military, I mean, I, I was very tortured in that time of my life because, you know, I grew up, my mom was more of, my mom is more of a kind of a masculine oriented woman. So here I am, attracted to more masculine-oriented women. It's very familiar. And, you know, a boy that grows up with a more masculine-oriented mom is going to generally create polarity with her and become himself a more feminine-oriented man. Likewise, consider a a young girl who grows up with a more feminine-oriented father May, and nothing's ever this black and white. I mean, you know, nothing, you know, we're just sort of talking in broad strokes here. But a more feminine-oriented man to a young girl who she learns, so she's not getting a a sort of a a strong masculine presence from this man while she's going to create it herself. And she's also probably modeling her mother, who is going to be a more masculine-oriented partner because her husband is a more feminine oriented partner. I mean, that's how polarity works. You know, she's modeling after her mom and becoming now a more, perhaps a more masculine oriented woman. And that's going to affect who they're attracted to. Absolutely. And who they draw in. Absolutely. It happens all the time. Yeah. No, this is a lot of, a lot of food for thought, Brian. It happens all the time. You know, what, well, I met Sylvia is fundamentally different from the vast, from most of the women I was ever drawn to in my life. And the reason for that is in the five years, five or six years that I was single before I met her, I was doing so much inner work, learn, uh, healing my relationship to my own masculine energy. I had so disowned myself from my masculine energy. I rejected being a man. I, I didn't know this, that I was doing this, but, you know, I just, I I didn't feel, I didn't trust men. I didn't feel safe around men. I had male friends, but I just, I harbored a lot of resentment towards man and all things masculine. Just looking out and seeing what masculine energy does to the world, I rejected it. So in doing a lot of that healing work before I met Sylvie, when I met her, I was so connected to my own masculine energy. Finally, you know, at age 40, I was so deeply in love with that masculine essence in me. And I was still learning, you know, to, to inhabit that part of me. But I was so connected to it that when I met Sylvie, uh, the first night I met her, oh my God, man, she, was, she exuded feminine energy. She was so like soft and I could feel like I felt her emotion. She was just this, 
the way I describe it is like when I when I walked into the cafe where we met and I, I hugged her, it's like someone just pushed me off off a ledge into the deepest ocean. I was intoxicated by her her energy. And in the past, I wasn't attracted and I wouldn't attract women like that. Women that were really connected to their feminine energy, they weren't interested in me because I was all in my feminine energy. <laughs> but I, again, as I said, I've been doing so much of that inner work that when I met Sylvie, you know, and she too had been doing so much emotional work to really touch her own emotions and be able to to connect, to be, to be in her feminine. Sylvie, you know, to this day, man, like Sylvie will tell me, she has to have a, at least one good cry every day to sort of stay stay fresh and connected to herself and and like I'm thinking one cry every day damn if I get one cry every 10 years yeah that's pretty extraordinary you know but with her you know she's helped me sort of connect to that feeling part of me so much more we humans boy we're messy we're so schizophrenic we're also very needy so what do you mean by that <laughs> i mean humans have needs it's like perfectly normal. I just did this IGTV today about the three options that you have when your partner can't or won't meet your needs. And mm-hmm. the intro to that is it's okay to have needs and it's okay to be needy because humans are inherently needy. We are full of needs for pleasure, satisfaction, fulfillment, mm-hmm. health, love, play, sex, work, fulfilling, friendships. I mean, just like the list almost doesn't end. And so a lot of my clients, you know, struggle with this fact, this idea of like being too needy and not wanting to appear too needy so that they don't push the other one away or so the other person doesn't leave. And and what I want to tell everybody is that, yeah, we're, we're needy. It's, it's okay to have needs. Yeah. And it's also your responsibility to find creative ways of getting those needs met, identifying what those needs are, finding a variety of different ways and people who can meet your needs, making your needs easy to meet by giving people actionable items on how they can meet your needs. I feel like there's a workshop in me on needs. (laughs) Are you familiar with David Data's three stages of love? Uh, No, but so my... (laughs) The David Data wrote The Way of the Superior Man, and I had a friend staying at my house who was sort of uh, new in recovery and was recovering from drugs and alcohol, and I've been sober for almost 12 years now. Actually, coming up on 12 years, um, August 1st. And one of my buddies was staying with me as he was kind of... He wasn't detoxing, but he needed a place to crash. Anyways, we had um, David Data as The Way of the Superior Man, and we had that in our toilet. Mm. Yeah, so it was a good like toilet book. Yeah, it was a good toilet book. So, but we started referring <laughs> referring to him as the porcelain prince, and so I resonate with some of his work and not, you know, not all of his work. Obviously, some of it makes sense, parts of it don't. But I haven't read anything newer than the way of the superior man. So that's my experience with David Data. Well, here, here's why. So th- this three stages of of love, three stages of intimacy, you could say. Um, it's not just, it's not only his model. It's, I mean, it's the model of, from, of codependency to interdependency. And in codependency, the reason I asked you, what do you mean when you say we're all very needy is because that's obviously a very charged word for people. And I think with good reason, because in, in codependency, what we could also call stage one relationship, codependency is all about 
If if you don't meet my needs, I'm going to freak the fuck out in one way, shape, form, or another. I'll either get louder or I'm going to shut down and just disappear. But but one way or another, I'm not going to be okay unless you meet my needs. Yeah. That obviously doesn't work for a relationship. That doesn't make for a healthy relationship. And I think when people reject neediness, this is what they're rejecting. Yeah. They're rejecting being saddled with the responsibility to make someone else okay. From the first stage perspective, well, I should say from the second stage perspective, that's an appropriate response. I am not responsible for your well-being. That's an appropriate second stage, which is the independence stage response. You know, I was in a relationship for five years in my 30s, early 30s, that was, it was abusive. I mean, we verbally, emotionally, and essentially physically abused each other. I mean, not, not in any, you know, a serious way, but, but it was not, it was not a healthy relationship. It was a codependent, uh, very turbulent relationship. I actually write about this in my book, Tell the Truth, Let the Peace Fall Where It May, which I, I shared earlier. When I got out of that relationship, Sean, and this was before I had, I was doing this work at all. I wasn't even life coaching at the time. I mean, I was just, I was, I was managing music artists, actually, uh, a spiritual music artist when I, when I got out of that relationship. But I was vigilant. Uh, is vigilant the word I'm looking for? No, that's not really the word. I was, I was, uh, let's go with indignant. I was, I was, I sort of planted my stake in the ground and I said, I will not be responsible for anyone else's well-being. She made me and I made her. We made each other responsible for the other's happiness. Mm -hmm. She made it so clear that if I don't do things the way she needed me to, she was going to make life hell for me. And and I did the same to her in my own way. Yikes. And so that's a form of neediness that doesn't serve anybody. When I got out of that relationship, I was adamant. That's the word I'm looking for, adamant. I refuse to take, I'm not going to be responsible for your well-being, and I'm not going to make you responsible for mine. And that's kind of the beginning of, of second stage, a second stage relationship. It's the independent stage. I'm going to take ownership for my shit. You take ownership for yours. And in fact, even some of that like it, it, there's there, you can kind of enter into a negotiation okay well look i'll do this but then you got to do that or you know here's what my needs are and i'm going to present them to you somebody has to meet them and if it's not going to be you that's okay but then i'm going to go somewhere else that's sort of the independent way of being in the world like i got me i'm good and you got you you're good i'm pumped about i mean i'm on the edge of my seat here for the third stage <laughs> so the third in the third stage And here's an interesting thing. What I often find is men tend to be the catalyst for first stage to second stage evolution. They tend to be. They aren't always. But they tend to be because independence, that's the masculine value, freedom, independence. You know, men tend to not want to take responsibility. And again, another, another rabbit hole I don't want to go down here, but I would say more kind of immature adolescent masculinity doesn't want to take responsibility for anything that it doesn't want to take responsibility for. Right. But that's often what shows up in relationships. And so I, I'll, I'll often work with couples. I, I, I find myself saying this to couples that I've been working with, that I start working with when I realize that he's been comfortable for longer, like in a heterosexual relationship, I often find them a man has been comfortable 
with the arrangement far longer than she has been comfortable with the arrangement. Mm. They've been doing relationship on his terms more than hers. And that's sort of indicative of more of a second stage oriented relationship. Like, look, you know, it's all, it's more freedom oriented than connection oriented, relationship oriented. It's more about the individual freedom than the, than the flow of love in the relationship. And really quickly, why is that, why are women quote unquote, uh, more likely to stick around in that kind of arrangement than men? It's, it's, it isn't that women are more likely to, the layer beneath that is women tend to be more connection valued, whereas men tend to be more freedom valued. Right. So, you know, I see this phenomenon a lot. I've, I've written about this where men can leave a relationship and come back to it over and over and over. Right. Whereas a woman tends to leave once. Mm. Because when she no longer, she'll hold on to that hope for connection. And I, I again, I experienced this in that five-year relationship. Sean, I left it over and over. I, I left and came back, left and came back because I, I just, I couldn't take it anymore. It was so constraining. I felt so limited in, in my freedom. I couldn't solve the problems of the relationship. I felt so constrained and I just, all of my, you know, my, my masculine worthiness, at least my ideas of it were just being assaulted constantly in that relationship. So I'd leave, I'd get out and then, oh, oh, I feel free. I feel independent and free from this bullshit. And I'd feel that for a week or two. Oh, and then I'd be like, and then I'd look back and she was always, always available for me to come back to because she was holding on to our connection mm. while I'm off, you know, chasing a superficial experience of freedom. Again, she's holding space for our connection. So, she, you know, either she'd come after me and I'd let her or I'd go back to her and she'd let me, but either way, uh, we'd come back together and the dance continues. And within 48 hours, the old patterns would reassert themselves. Yeah. And so, and again, I see this happen all the time. Even, even when men don't physically leave the relationship, they emotionally leave it. If they were emotionally in it in the first place. And most men, at least at the very beginning, at least show the signs of emotional sure. interest. Yeah. You know, they're excited, whether it's, whether it's because they're horny or they're genuinely in those early early days touching a feeling that they haven't felt in a long time. Yeah, when it feels good. It feels good. It's exciting. It's There's hope. It's like, whoa, this woman, she's bringing all of her, kind of her life to me. And wow, my life is all of a sudden has meaning again. Mm -hmm. the, the muse has has arrived. Love has alighted into my heart. And <laughs> But then, then she becomes human. Yeah, and has she needs. She stops <laughs> And has needs and sensitivities and probably traumas and just all kinds of things that are not easy for him to be with. Yeah. And all of a sudden he starts to feel constrained again and like, shit, I don't know how to do this. I don't know if I want to do this. It shouldn't be this hard. You know, all our programming, all our stories come back to us. This is a lot of work. Now I'm responsible. And coming back to our lack of worthiness of love is like, well, I'm fucking this up. She's not happy. It must be my fault. I'm a fuck up. That's the the core masculine fear is I'm a fuck up. Mm. I did I did wrong. Or I'm not doing enough. 
I'm not doing enough. I can't make her happy. And I mean, it's just, it's a shit show inside of that. It doesn't, it doesn't go well. So anyway, you know, we're coming back to this three stages conversation. This is kind of where we, we get stuck in this stage two. You know, the best stage two relationship is one where there's not a lot of emotion or risk. It's like just two roommates living together. Having sex. We're both independent. We got, we got our own stuff. We're taken care of. Separate bank accounts, maybe. We don't depend on the other. We don't ask too much of them. That's right. We might, you know, we'll negotiate some things here and there, but for the most part, I got me and you got you. And so the reason that I, I think a lot of, I often see that women tend to be the catalyst for stage three is because that independence, the land of independence just makes it, it's lonely making. Yeah. It gets, it gets old. It gets old. There's, it's safe. There's no real flow of love happening between two people. In stage three, what we call interdependence, hmm. this is where things get risky again. This is where, so, uh, so neediness, whereas in, in stage one, so here, here's a way of saying it. In stage one, there's kind of a, each stage has its own motto, if you will, or its own slogan, its own sort of battle cry. Stage one is, I need you to be, do, say, X, Y, Z for me to be happy <clears throat> or for me, for me to be, be okay. I need you to do this to, for me to be okay. Stage two says, I don't need you and I don't want you to need me either. Stage three says, I am going to allow myself to need you again. Hmm. Stage three is, it's like built on stage two independence. It's, 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 it's like knowing, look, I can take care of myself. I know how to get my needs met. That doesn't require you to do it for me. And though, I'm choosing to enter to do this dance with you. And there are certain things that there are certain, it's like a hug. It's like being touched. It's like, you know, feeling love. There's, I know how to give myself love. I know how to ask a, uh, somebody for a hug when I need it. You know, Byron Katie, one of my longtime teachers said, you can have anything you want if you're willing to ask a thousand people. <laughs> That's kind of like the ultimate stage two practice. It's like standing on the corner and asking a hundred people to have sex with you. You might get one person to say yes. Sure. Yeah. It's like, but that's not, that's not a, that's not an, that's not an intimate relationship. No. That's just getting what you want. And that's fine. There's a place for that. But if I'm in an intimate relationship with somebody and I ask them for a hug because I need a hug. See, in stage one, they're not free to say no. If they say no, I'm going to punish them. Yeah. Either through my upset, I'm going to, I'm going to either lash out or, or, or shut down and withdraw. Because I, I, I'm needy in a way, in a codependent way. In stage two, I either won't ask for a hug or I'll be willing to ask a thousand people for a hug. Maybe if I get it from my partner, great. If not, well, that's fine. I'll just go get it from someone else. And I'll, you know, I'll either, I'll probably pretend that it doesn't hurt that they said no, but I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to make them responsible for it. Uh, not going to ask twice. Not definitely not going to ask twice. But in stage three, I need a hug. I'm going to ask my partner for a hug. 
And I know they might say no, and they're free to say no. And if they say no, it might still hurt, and I'm going to let it hurt. I'm not going to make them wrong for saying no. I'm not going to punish them for saying no. But I am going to let them know, you know, probably just through my body language, through something, you know, they're going to know that it hurt me. Because I need a hug. I'm hurting right now, and a hug would help me. They don't have to give it to me. But I'm not, you know, I'm not in the mode of, I'm not necessarily going to go ask a thousand people. So I get it. What I'm actually going to do is let myself hurt so that they can see, they really get that, that them not showing up for me this way while they're free not to, it has impact. It has impact. When they don't. Yeah. That's the one thing I was thinking. It has an impact. It has an impact. And that's a stage three relationship. It's interdependent. We are dependent on each other, but it's it's not an act of, you know, in stage one, it's it's all war. In stage three, it's not war. It's just, it's just, it's a dance, you could say. Something I learned was to let my partner know when I'm disappointed. When they're not able to show up for me in a way that, I want them to, or have asked them to. And how do you do that? I just say, um, well, I, I, well, you physically, right, with body language, but also just by saying, um, I'm disappointed. Mm. I understand, and you're free to to do that. And um, I'm also sad and disappointed. Yeah, absolutely, and that's important. Your partner needs to know the impact that they're having on you. I mean, if if my partner did, doesn't tell me. When I do something that hurts her, and I never do anything intentionally that hurts her, I've never worked, I've never worked, I've worked with hundreds of couples over the last seven years. I've never worked with a couple where either partner intentionally wanted to hurt the other. Yeah. Usually, when, well, usually, well, first it's just unconscious. I mean, I may just say something, she has a sensitivity and I'm not even aware of the sensitivity or I'm not aware that what I'm about to say is going to trigger that sensitivity. So I just say it or I do it. That's not, it's no malicious intent. If she pretends it doesn't hurt or doesn't give me the feedback that it had impact on her, I'm just going to do it again. I mean, even if she tells me there's still the risk that I'll do it again until I really get it. But this is how couples learn about each other. And I tell I tell couples when I when I start working with them, expect it to take 10 years to get really good at being with each other. 10 years. Oh, and I, and I tell couples that not because I actually expect it to take 10 years. It's more of a litmus test of although it can, some I've I've worked with couples that have been together 40 plus years that are just figuring things out. But when I tell couples that, there's usually one of two reactions. One is, oh, you mean we're going to be okay in 10 years? Like if we just work at this, we'll, 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 there's a, there's light at the end of the tunnel. Like, yeah. Oh, thank God. Okay. Well, we can do this then. That's one response. And then there's the other response, which is 10 fucking years. I have to be with this monkey for 10 fucking years before things get better. No way. I'm out. It's well, a, that's, good, good, yeah. good riddance. Yeah. That's, a, that's a good catalyst. It's just, a, it's like a litmus test. I mean, things can change very quickly 
with just a few shifts in behavior, of behavior, some new tools and insights. I mean, things can shift very quickly, but there are things, I mean, Sylvie and I have been together for five years and, and there are still things both of us are uncovering about ourselves that help the other be with us in a, in a more skillful way. Yeah. And Sylvie and I, man, I don't know a couple on the planet that there may be couples that work kind of equally as we do at creating a good relationship, but they ain't that work more than we do. You know, we've been at this for five years. You got a therapist and a relationship coach. <laughs> exactly. It's like, it's like the, that's the, uh, it's the beginning of a joke. <laughs> I don't know what the punchline is, but. Well, the punchline is, uh, you know, a therapist, a marriage and family therapist and a, 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 and a, and a relationship coach start dating. And they break up in six months. Yeah, that's the punchline. Just that they break up, you know, and they get back together and they figure shit out, and it still ain't easy. And um, obviously, you, you clearly, I'm not a very good joke writer. <laughs> but the point is that it, it takes intention, and and again, coming back to um, worthiness of love, I, I find for me the what it really so much of all of the tools and practices and insights and just everything what it ultimately all comes down to is removing the obstacles to love right. removing the obstacles to love that was going to be my question how can we do this how can we believe that we're worthy of love how can we open up to love to our partner regardless of gender regardless of what the relationship breakdown is how can we open up well, I suggest getting support, number one. Yeah, that's I mean, always my first suggestion. Yeah, I mean, there's just a million ways to climb that mountain. What, what I do know is it's not a mountain most of us, if any of us, can climb by ourselves. Right. Most people are, are using what I call the wing it method of relationship. Just winging it. You know, doing what our parents did or doing the opposite of what our parents did because what they did was so bad I'm never going to do what they did yeah. so I'm going to go and do the exact opposite but as I said earlier in either case we're, we're not really living our own authentic expression of love you don't know what you don't know you can't see what you can't see and that's the benefit of working with whether it's a therapist or a coach or even just doing some programs like you know Sean you're creating programs Sylvie and I we have programs you know those are a step up of, of reading a book. You know, you can read books and I encourage that. Doing programs is, I think, more of a hands-on, more in-depth, deep dive way of, of learning certain skills and practices. And, and then the step beyond that is actually working with somebody, you know, maybe going to a retreat. Well, we can't do that anymore at the time of COVID. Maybe in a couple of years, we'll do retreats again. But working privately with somebody, it's, it's really just all about you know, looking, looking inward, peering inward. And again, it is a paradox that we've pointed at through this. We don't find fulfillment by getting, by finding a better partner. And at the same time though, as we are willing to do our own inner work, our partner does change. Oh yeah. Or we do find a so-called better for us partner. It's kind of, it kind of goes hand in hand. Yeah, if you change, there's a good chance they'll change if they want to stick around. They'll have to. They'll almost have to. They'll I mean, almost they'll, have they, to. they either have to keep up with you or, you know, 
or you'll just keep, I like to say, you'll, you just keep moving on the, in the direction of awesome and living your own best life. And they'll either have to keep up with you and make their own changes so that they can, or they'll just get left in your dust. Yep. Yeah. The, uh, this three options, you know, this thing that I wrote and made a IGTV about the three options that you have when a partner can't or won't meet your needs is one, get creative, right? Negotiate, compromise, find creative ways of getting those needs met. Two, accept that your needs aren't going to be met. Or three, leave. You could leave. It's totally an option. And it happens all the time. It's the last option for a reason. Like I, I want people to work it out, to work it out as much as possible and to learn and to grow and to do programs and to, you know, see a counselor or a therapist, which, you know, I, I feel like a lot of people are really resistant to even if it weren't for the the financial factor, right? People go, oh, it's really expensive. And it is, it is. It's an, it's, it, it can be really expensive. But there's also the fact that, you know, when you go to a therapist, you also have to open up or else it's not going to work. So you got guys, guys, and you got women, men and women who are scared of opening up in relationship. And then we say, we'll go see a therapist and then they're going to have to open up in that one as well for, for it to be effective. Absolutely. And on top of that, we are an independent minded, we're an independent, uh, valued culture, right? Getting support. Why would I do that? I got this. I got this. I'll figure this out. I don't need help. Yeah. I had a, I had a girlfriend and we're going to wrap this up, but I had a girlfriend who uh, was extremely avoidant and I was extremely anxious in that dynamic. Usually I'm the avoidant one. Uh, mm. but in this dynamic, that's how it played out. And and I wanted, I really wanted it to work. And so I said, let's go see a therapist. And she goes, I would never consider going to see a therapist. Wow. I'm kind of curious only for the experience of having a third party, you know, tell me what they think is going on with me, but not for any actual healing or beneficial reasons. Anyways, long story short, we're no longer together, obviously. Yeah. Uh, and it was also one of the most traumatic breakups. Like it took forever to get over um, because the relationship was, was so rocky and messy and had a lot of open loops, you know, it was just, yeah. just a lot of, you know, it was just a mess to untangle. Um, and, you know, again, in a world that is masculine oriented, we're all logic oriented to say that you need mental health support, it, there's, a, there's still a stigma. I mean, I believe that's changing. But to suggest I, in my own mind, can't figure out my own life, oh, no, I can't. It's a, it's a violation of that masculine belief system. So, again, so many rabbit holes here, Sean. We're going to have to just end it here because I feel like I could do this <laughs> for another three hours easily, and I want to respect your time and the time of, of my listeners um, so I want to I want to ask you where can we find you and yeah. how can we work with you? So my my website Brian Reeves B R Y A N Reeves R E E V E S dot com. That's really one stop shopping. I mean I'm on Instagram, I'm on Facebook. You can find me through my website Brian dot com. I have so many uh, blogs and videos, and all my programs are there. You know, coaching, if you're interested in coaching, I'm actually right now, there's a waiting list uh, for my coaching, whether couples or individuals. I'm, I'm full up at, at the time we're recording this. That may be, that may change when this actually comes out. But. Mid-July, mid everybody. We're in mid-July right now. 
July yeah. 14th. So brianreeves.com, but but come find me on Instagram and, and on Facebook. I'm I'm sharing there regularly. I have so much free content and uh, I have my own podcast as well called Men This Way. And it's not just for men. I have a lot of women listen. It's really about men. It is for men, about men, but it, it I find a lot of women listen, get great insight into the hearts and minds of, of men. But really, I, I created this podcast for men that don't have wise male elders to learn from, um, which is me and most men. It's a it's just a, a conversation, an exploration into issues that that uniquely uh, affect and concern uh, men. Okay. But BrianReeves.com, you can find everything there. One stop shop. Final question yeah. is, uh, what does love mean to you, Brian? Oh man, what does love mean to me? Love, love means being willing to not believe everything I think, and it means it means learning to embrace what is. Which doesn't mean not being an activist for what I want to be, but it does mean love means. You know, Byron Katie, I'll come back to her. She said, "Love." She said, "Personalities want something." Love wants nothing. Mm. It's only personalities that want something. I I have no problem with wanting. I love wanting. It's my humanness. I love desiring. I'm not against desire. I'd have a shitty relationship if I had no desire. My partner wouldn't feel good with a man who doesn't have desires or desire her. But that's different from love. Being able to love my partner means being able to fully embrace her even when she shows up in ways that feel inconvenient, even annoying, or just ways that I don't want her to show up. Mm. And I want to be really careful because my partner's amazing and I don't want to give the impression like she annoys me. And that's not what I'm saying. It happens. But it ha- all of us are going to kind of explore throughout this conversation. We're, we're all, we're human, man. We're going to be, we're going to be annoyed by each other and irritated by each other at times. We're going to show up. We're going to be disappointed. Like you said, we are going to disappoint each other. Love to me means being able to love, embrace, be with each other, even through our disappointments of each other. Mm. That's where the magic really is. That's beautiful. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for your time and your wisdom. Sean, man, I've really enjoyed this. I really appreciate you inviting me on. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you for spending this hour with Brian and me. And guess what? Next week, I'm hosting a new course on flirting, authentic attraction, and how to connect to love with clarity and courage. This is a whole course on connection. Connection connection to people that turn you on. How to flirt without being creepy. And how to connect with people in a romantic capacity to start building the kind of love life that you are proud of. It starts on August 6th, and I'm really excited. I hope you'll join us. Go to thelovedrive.com forward slash flirt, F-L-I-R-T, and have a beautiful week.